Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Thomas Gautier. Thomas is a professor in the Strategy and Organisation Department at Lyon Business School in Lyon, France. He serves as course director for the Disrupted Futures Program. Disrupted Futures is a core course in the school's Masters of Science of Management, the International MBA, and the Executive MBA Curricula. Disrupted Futures is a live, case-based course in which participants apply newly acquired knowledge and competencies to help a real organisation anticipate multiple alternative futures. As a researcher, Thomas is exploring how organisations may learn to use the future to navigate uncharted waters. He is an experienced strategic foresight and scenario planning process facilitator and he has recently published a strategic foresight handbook with EPFL Press in Lausanne, Switzerland. Welcome to FuturePod, Thomas. Hi, Peter. Thank you for uh, having me. Thanks, Thomas. Question one, the Thomas Gautier story. So how did Thomas become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, I guess I did not take the uh, shortest route uh, to join this community. I was uh, born and raised in Paris, um, and I actually started my uh, higher education journey as a student at a tiny science and engineering school in Paris. And back then, I, uh, I thought I wanted to grow into an organic chemistry scientist, but I you know, very quickly was uh, discouraged uh, for two main reasons. One is... Uh, a chemistry professor explained to me that if this was going to be my career, I would probably lose between five and 10 years of life expectancy because of all the toxic fume I would have to inhale. So that in itself was uh, almost a no-go. And then I met a physics professor um, who introduced me to ultrasound. And I frankly thought that I would dedicate my life to um, medical ultrasound, which is the reason why I then... Uh, moved uh, to, to the U.S., um, studied there, uh, worked for about 10 years as a research and development engineer in the uh, medical imaging field, and then uh, had the trouble of spending too much time with physicians, medical doctors who thought I understood what they were telling me, but uh, I didn't. So went back to school, got my uh, doctorate in uh, clinical medicine, felt better in conversations with uh, those guys and eventually uh, came back to Europe, still working for the same company. And one day on a train in the Netherlands, where I was living back then, I listened to uh, a recording of uh, Gaston Berger, who is, ah. well, you know, as you know, Peter, considered the founding father of uh, La Prospective in France. And at that time, I thought, okay, now I have found a discipline or even perhaps an indiscipline where I could exercise my curiosity. So here we go. I became part of the community by accident. I like that, an indiscipline. You're the first person who's used that term. You can have that one on your business card. Well, I wish I could, but this is a saying that was uh, very quickly crafted after uh, Gaston Berger uh, thought 
of La Prospective. So I cannot claim any uh, ownership <laughs> of this one. So, yeah, so that's, that's a very interesting route through. So the obvious question I've got to ask you is, for a person who thought he was going to be a chemist then studied clinical medicine to suddenly come home to foresight futures and life prospective, there must have been something else going on in your life that that spoke to. Well, what's what's been going on is um, that as as many of us, um, you know, I've always been extremely curious, and I've always been probably not jealous, but I've always looked at the um, you know ancient philosophers and then the uh, Renaissance thinkers and uh, experimentators as key figures that I could uh, look up to as maybe not role model, but uh, accomplished and distinguished individuals who never thought there are barriers between uh, silos of knowledge. And that idea of, of embracing as much as possible the complexity of the world by a variety of approaches, using a variety of intellectual and practical devices like science, experiments, interviews, ethnographic uh, observations. I thought this was the best way to have a well-rounded life. And I thought mm. eventually that uh, La Prospective and Future Studies was a great place to be when you didn't want to choose. So for you, the the concept of the meta-discipline rather than a single place of knowledge? Yeah, to me, what is central to what we do in our community is to borrow whatever we think could be useful from any other discipline in order to help people, help organizations, broaden their appreciation for what the futures are are or could be or might be. So in a way, we are very much objective-driven or focus-driven. We, we try and work with people so that they improve or they enrich their everyday posture, their everyday worldview. And that essentially requires that we put no limits to the approaches that we will, um, again, borrow. I, I don't think that La Prospective really is, is a discipline. It really has got more to do with a uh, philosophy in action that can then be institutionalized, that can be learned, that can be practiced, but it shouldn't claim, I think, no intent of generating uh, the same kind of knowledge that uh, we may try to generate when we study and do physics, for instance. But where you practice it at a business school, is that not constraining for the scope and ambition that you're speaking about? Well, yes and no. I think that um, if I look at uh, what you've just said, Peter, on a positive note, being in a business school means in the world of 2020, being in a place where you meet and learn with people that ultimately will have, for many of them, a rather high degree of uh, instrumental capacity. They will be put in positions, they will be put in contexts where whatever they think, whatever they do, is possibly going to be impactful, if not very impactful. So this is a place where 
you know, the, the future is, 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 is being made. This is, of course, not the only place, but that's one of the um, upside of, of being in a business school. Then the other upside of being in a business school today is that the incoming students are in search for an alternative curriculum as compared to what business schools were offering 5, 10, or 20 years ago. And so it's the precise time maybe in history where students being thirsty for these types of new approaches, new relationships with knowledge, with um, thinking, makes prospective and future studies very much desirable topics. And most of the students that um, I have in, 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 in the class with me end up leaving the class after a semester thinking, well, this has definitely come as a great complement to the more traditional thinking processes that I have been uh, taught in the past. And this is incapacitating me to create my own um, thinking processes. So this, this empowering process that uh, students are going through with uh, future studies and perspective is, is, is very much desired these days, I think. As an ex-academic, I'm also going to ask you, is it equally well received by the members of the academy themselves? In other words, the intellectual keepers of knowledge in universities? Well, I think what's well received, especially at, at the school that I work, is the the somewhat unique approach to preparing people for, for making decisions and, and taking actions. And what business schools also are recognizing, and you know that very well, is the older model of them being very much self-centered, of them producing knowledge that is exclusively validated by peers without um, the necessity to translate into the business world and into society at large is probably a dying world. So I think that many institutions are now willing to take on board folks like myself that really don't have the proper CV that doesn't show the proper sequence of, you know, doctorate in management and post-doctorate in management, etc. But I think we bring in this degree of, of freedom and uh, impertinence that colleagues recognize is a necessity, but they are in a way um, stuck for some of them in their disciplinary thinking. It's not that they intellectually couldn't escape their intellectual silo, but they've invested too much. I've not invested yeah. that much in management studies. So why not taking an unprecedented look at management studies because I do not have as high of a vested interest and maybe five years from now I'll do something else. Yes, that's certainly very true that the longer you build into a career and a reputation and a body of work to some extent that it doesn't necessarily have to become an obstacle to change but it can become something that is just too hard to put down. Well, as you know, Peter, I mean, to join a conversation, which really is what research is about. I mean, a researcher, when he or she decides on a research path, 
really it's like uh, this person comes in a room where there are many groups of people having side conversations and as a researcher you come closer to a conversation you listen and if you think you like what is being discussed and on top of that if you think you have something to contribute then you make a stop and you start participating in a conversation this is what research is about but what we also know is that it takes years to um, use the uh, codes to know the vocabulary to know the grammar that is employed by a particular field of study. And that investment, it is extremely difficult to reiterate it a second time, a third time, a fourth time. It's like learning a new language to switch from one field of research to another. That's very true. I mean, at one level, it's a barrier to entry. And of course, it also operates to differentiate the knowledge discipline from other knowledge disciplines. It is a barrier to entrance, as you say, and also the overall um, academic system, the way I understand it, and I claim no expertise, is there are no incentive mechanisms for researchers to behave uh, like, again, uh, uh, philosophers of the past that could also be poets, that could also be mathematicians, that could also be astronomers. I mean, tell me if there is one single uh, peer-reviewed journal where um, you can be freely addressing topics by bringing in knowledge, by bringing in theory, by bringing in concepts from a variety of disciplines. That's just not existing today. Yeah, yeah certainly. I mean, it might be that those journals are re-emerging in the sort of self-owned journals, the sort of peer-reviewed journals you know, the sort of peer-to-peer -peer model. Um, but certainly, uh, yeah, a lot of the journals have become highly centralised and guardians of, I think what, what I'm hearing you describe is shrinking territory. Shrinking territory. And also there is no recognition for those academics that will dedicate their career to being some sort of transmission mechanisms between disciplines. No one is being paid, no one is being rewarded for acting as a translator, for acting as a mediator, for acting as a facilitator of dialogues in between disciplines. This is, this is extremely rare and only a few people have been able to make a career being such translators, apprehending complexity in its wholeness without being recognized in any single discipline for having taken this, this, this difficult path. Thanks, Thomas. Second question, the, the concept and methods question. I asked the guest to talk about some frameworks or concepts or ideas that they believe are central to how they practice their craft. So what do you want to talk about with the listeners? Well, maybe to um, provide an additional flavor to, to concepts and methods and, and build upon what um, other future pod guests have uh, already contributed, I'd like to talk about um, design fiction and uh, the concept of immersive experience. So... Yeah. My interest in 
creating immersive experience stems from my own recognition, which again may not be universal, that uh, there is no learning without emotional shock. And ultimately, future studies projects, scenario planning projects might be viewed as attempt to generate memories of the futures. And again, you memorize what has come at a time of a shock. So shocks can be caused by immersive experience. And I think I'll, I'll use an example if, if, if that's okay to be a bit more clear. A few years ago, I was asked to teach um, a corporate strategy class to um, a group of students. And I was asked furthermore that uh, the students be working on Google as a, as a company, as a case. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a very boring course, not only for the students, but for me as well, because eight weeks from now, we will see each other again. And all the discussion will revolve around how great a search engine Google has been able to, um, to produce. And that's not going to take us very far. So the day before, first day of class, I decided to meet with a um, makeup artist friend of mine. And I asked her to create um, a fake scar at the back of my head. But this was like a beautifully crafted fake scar, something that I would not have been able to do myself, especially on the back of my head. And then in the morning of class, I, I, I come into the classroom. I start by apologizing to the students that I'm late by a few minutes. But I tell them that... Um, I have a good reason for being late. Uh, I'm just coming back from Palo Alto, California, where I had the privilege of being the very first human being to be implanted with a Google chip. <laughs> and now I have a full access, free access, real-time access to every single bit of knowledge that sits on the web. And then I move forward and I start teaching my uh, boring corporate strategy class. And I tell them, by the way, eight weeks from now, You'll have to tell me what you've understood of Google strategy. Now, the next few weeks have been extremely uh, painful for me. No one student in the class would be willing to talk to me. No one student in the class would be willing to um, come close to me. So if this person would see me at the other end of the hallway, he or she would walk away. And I even had a group of three to four students going to the director and asking that I be fired because to them, it was not acceptable that a cyborg teach in a business school. So I was asked by the director to explain the situation. I frankly was not that far from being fired. I eventually was not fired. And comes the um, final class. I meet with the students again. I tell them, okay, look, uh, I'm sorry, this was probably the poorest joke that you could expect from a professor, but you know, that's who I am. Now tell me all about Google. And at that time, the magic operated. The students went extremely far in appreciating Google's strategy. They thought of um, the holding company Alphabet as being um, very interesting by its very name. Why would you call a holding company Alphabet? What does that tell you about the overall project that the company has for, for business, of course, but also for perhaps creating a reset in society. If you touch the alphabet, you touch the very most precious device we use to communicate, which is language. 
And then students came to me and said, well, but Google is not only Google. It's also this very tiny company that no one is ever talking about called Calico, which turns out to be another company, biotech-oriented, that you know calls itself the company that is going to fight death. It's basically creating uh, cures and drugs for uh, fighting um, aging mechanisms. But because the students came out of the first class with me with a shock, with a glimpse of a possible future, the entire work process that they went through was, I think, extremely different from what they would have done in the absence of this emotional shock. Hence my my deep interest in always wrapping up uh, futures exercise with immersive experience. So before we move on, what do you think that's about? In other words, what is the connection? I mean, you really, what did, what's your theory for how emotional shock appears to you know, effectively open up people's thinking? Well, I think it, it connects with uh, us as human beings sensing and making sense of what's going on, not just with our brain, but also with, uh, you know, with our guts, with our entire body. And um, in a way, my students back then were probably the target of multiple processes that tried to capture their attention. That's basically the, the basis of... Uh, the digital economy, which is about capturing people's attention, I thought, well, I need to win this battle. I need to capture their attention in a way that a memory of the future will stick with them. And that's not going to happen with me simply showing them a PowerPoint presentation. I mean, frankly, Peter, how many times have you watched a PowerPoint presentation and cried? Mm. It's not like PowerPoint generates the highest level of emotions. And it's not like PowerPoint presentations generate memorable times. Memorable times are created and stick with us when we can refill the emotion that we felt at the time when this uh, memory was created. So emotional shock to me are a very effective way to get the student's attention and make sure that this memory of the future will stick with them. So does it follow that if a consultant or somebody working in an organisation is doing futures and foresight work but not building in the shock, do you believe they can be effective? I think they can probably still be effective. And, and again, I do not claim a, a comprehensive knowledge of, of our field. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a learner. But effectiveness is probably something to be looked at at um, multiple levels, you know, the, the individual level, the organization level, and, and maybe a, a higher system level. So when there is an intervention inside an organization, one question we may ask ourselves towards the end is, what happened to people's individual behaviors, to people's individual relationship with the world they're in and with the futures that they may be contemplating? Did we achieve something? That achievement might be facilitated with an emotional shock like what I described, 
But I guess it's also important to recognize diversity in, you know, people's appreciation for learning, in people's willingness to learn. And I'm sure that some of the students that I was talking about did not remember anything of the experiment that they were a part of because they may not be receptive to this type of learning environment. And it's in a way in, in cultivating diversity in the media, in the processes whereby a strategic foresight process is being undertaken that the, we raise the probability that many individuals are going to be um, are going to be touched. So I wouldn't go as far as saying that there has to be an emotional shock for a strategic foresight to be uh, to be successful. There are multiple other factors that uh, you know other folks that you've interviewed know 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 very well. Handy Hines, for instance, and and many other uh, futurists. Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, Stuart Candy and the other um, experiential futures people are of the view, of course, that futures as a purely cognitive exercise could be one of the reasons why, I think Stuart Candy actually said this in his interview, that at one level, futures has not been successful in changing the mindsets and worldviews of decision makers over the last 40 to 50 years. And it could be, again, that we in our community are are trying to create effects that are possibly quite different from what uh, other disciplines are, are trying to create. Like if you are a supply chain specialist and you're trying to improve the efficiency of a supply chain inside an organization, probably you don't have to be going down the same path as we are in future studies to to be effective, to be powerful. In a way, we're trying to bring to people's attention something in their everyday life that they are probably not paying attention to, that is the futures. And so for them to recall that they've had a singular encounter with a singular object, which is future, perhaps the emotional shock the experiential future, as Stuart puts it, are an effective way because it not only helps people remember that something special happened, but it helps them connect this special time with their own special recognition that up until now, they may have been inhabiting others' futures without questioning the source of the futures, without questioning the intent of those that have been shaping the futures. And so the emotional shock becomes a starting point for them being extremely vigilant, perhaps in tracking how the future is being used by others and by themselves every day. Thanks, Thomas. Third question, the futures that are emerging around you, what are you paying attention to? What's what's getting you excited? What's getting you anxious? How do you kind of operate as a human in relation to the emerging disruptive futures around you? Well, I'm quite interested in what I still consider to be uh, blind spots for, for many people, for organizations, but even perhaps for uh, part of our community and, and I 
personally have a number of blind spots that I'm trying to uncover um, as um, as I move forward. So one first topic would probably be around the future of the organized world. I, I think that um, now in 2020, we tend to be taking taken for granted that uh, nation states, for instance, are going to be around forever. Whereas if we simply look back at history, we quickly recognize that uh, Westphalian nation states are a creation of the 17th century. So it's not that old. And there is no reason to believe that um, if there is a start date for nation states, there won't be an end date for nation states. Mm. And I would probably say the same about corporations. So people have for a very long time been gathering and using techniques to, um, to create value, to create uh, all sorts of artifacts and perhaps services that were probably not called services 1,000 years ago. But the, um, the legal entity as we know it today, the corporation that we know it today, isn't that old. And was created for um, you know very good reasons. Companies, the way they are organized today, find their roots in the industrial revolution, and we know the industrial re- revolution is gone. What about corporations? Do we have good reasons to believe that this is an organizing principle of the world that should never be questioned, that should never be challenged? I I don't know, but I think it would be worth opening up the conversation around. Uh, uh, the very notion of uh, corporations. I guess a second area that I find interesting to be paying attention to is um, the future of anthropocentrism. Our overall legal environment, our overall social environment, economic environment is very much human being centered. If we think about um, slogans that companies are using, all of them want to be customer-centric. They all want to be paying the highest degree of attention to human beings, uh, provided that they are their clients. But again, how long is that going to hold together? Are we finding that uh, the year 2020 is telling us something about um, anthropocentrism? Are there questions to be asked when we recognize that uh, the um, unlimited growth of anthropocentrism may have caused some uh, damages to our very life support systems, ecological systems, forests, etc. It's probably a good time to be seriously considering what would be alternative systems where anthropocentrism is not the the ultimate uh, value. And I guess lastly, and maybe in connection with the first two topics, I wonder, and this is a very naive question, how far are we from peak complexity? I'm not talking about peak oil here because I'm no energy uh, expert, but it's probably worth asking the question whether there is no alternative to growing complexity. And I guess as future thinkers, we could be asking ourselves, is there a raising potential for uh, maybe an emerging complexity contraction momentum that could trigger some deeper, more profound changes to how we are organized as a, as a, as a species, how we are organized in relation with uh, 
with our environment and and so forth yeah the the notion of i think there was a special issue of futures edited by richard slaughter and josh floyd which was specifically talked about what they called descent futures this is the notion of a future that descends from a level of intensity complexity to a more sustainable lower level of intensity is a topic that the few times that we've even tried to have that conversation as a as a futures community in Australia is that it's very difficult for people who've been born into a world where human society seems to have a teleological direction towards greater connection, greater complexity, and greater knowledge and greater scope to imagine that we could turn it around. I mean, the limits to growth said, no, if, if humans don't turn it around, the nature of the system itself will turn it around for us. Um, you know, again, the notion of collapse. But I think you're asking the question is, can we, would we, could we deliberately choose to decomplexify aspects of our world in order to create, in order to address problems. Yes, that's absolutely right. I guess my um, my deeper interest is in asking the question, would it be worth and would it be possible to be thinking through a peaceful, democratic process of negotiating a decomplexification of society as opposed to having to deal with the uh, maybe crisis mode that we could be uh, pushed into by you know energy becoming uh, scarce by nature being not so uh, friendly with us anymore i guess my interest my my very humanistic interest here is to create the circumstances in which we can have an elaborate, peaceful and democratic negotiation around us as a society going down in complexity. And maybe the result of the conversation, the result of the debate would be that uh, we cannot come to an agreement. But the good thing anyway of such a process would be that we would have collectively contemplated a variety of alternative routes that we would not expect to um, eventually come to life, but they may stick with us and they may help us uh, simply be more able to deal with uh, tenser circumstances that could arise in the future. So the, the value of the debate in itself, to me, justifies to go after this this question, even if it doesn't translate into political decisions, even if it doesn't translate into very hard decisions that we would collectively make. And there's a blind spot there too on the notion of it's a democratic process. We are seeing signs of the return of forms of autocratic leadership and perhaps particularly I'm thinking in relation to how China handled the COVID epidemic, perhaps it's not a democratic process that decomplexifies, but perhaps it might be better suited to an autocratic form of decision-making that does that. Well, I think what's um, 
what's happening and maybe one way of 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 reading uh the the year 2020 is that it's it's almost as if as if the um the physical and the biological realities are crashing into our imagined realities when a virus spreads out this is a biological reality that's seriously attacking our imagined realities like for instance democracy or uh, other sorts of uh, man-made constructs like uh, uh, social welfare etc and in that clash between biological reality and imagined reality i think that we as futurists have a role to play to ensure that the diversity of futures is not obliterated by the biological reality all of a sudden becoming unhospitable. And while autocratic approaches might have been regarded as uh, highly efficient in the near term, in a way they, they kill, I think they, they simply kill any sort of future diversity. And we know what happens in nature when we start killing biodiversity. So in the short term, autocratic approaches might be uh, more efficient, but I would be questioning the, the longer term consequences of not letting diverse futures emerge and find their way forward. Thanks, Thomas. Fourth question, communication question. How does Thomas explain what he does to people who don't understand what it is that Thomas does? Well, I simply help uh, students in particular become philosophers in action. <laughs> My ultimate goal, you know, Peter, is that they grow into free individuals. And for that, what we teach, what I teach, what you teach, what others are teaching is that at least today, and hopefully this is something that we can slowly shape in a different way, the future is, is an ultimate battlefield. And our freedom is constantly being challenged when others are trying as hard as they can to colonize the future, as Riel would put it, Riel Miller, with their view on the future. Now, I'm not saying that uh, my students becoming philosophers in action would have to be fighting every single day for a future that they consider to be more desirable than other futures, but they probably should start by raising their level of awareness that the futures are everywhere. And when they can go as deep as recognizing what's the future that is helping them make a decision or stopping them from making a decision or taking an action, they're making one more step towards self-determination. They're making one more self towards becoming perfectly capable of owning the consequences of their decisions, which is probably another uh, value that we are going after when teaching future studies is to help students 
asking themselves the question as you would rightfully put it, Peter, is are they being sincere with the decisions they are making? In other words, are they encapsulating the complexity, the diversity of futures that could emerge out of their decision in the decision that they are making? Mm. Are they becoming owners of the consequences? Do they think beyond the first order consequence of the decision they're about to make? Do they regain some sort of political stance in their everyday's gestures, in their everyday's decisions? Because as we all know, to consume in one way or to consume in another way is a political gesture, as you would also rightfully put it, Peter, to go somewhere or to go somewhere else on vacation is a political gesture. And politics is about recognizing that um, decisions stem from simplifying complexity and students that become futures literate are students that own this process of complexity simplification. They do not let others simplify complexity for them. They take complexity in their face and they're happy about this situation and they become the complexity simplifiers. Therefore, they become the owners of their decisions. Is there a somewhat paradox between your earlier stated interest in are we at peak complexity and you, on one hand, saying the world may need to find simpler forms of governance, structure, footprint. On the other hand, you're saying that people in order or people to be fully present and able to choose the decisions they make, they need to bring a level of complexity into their thinking. Correct. Um, this uh, This is, as you say, a bit paradoxical, I guess. The challenge we're facing in today's society is that we've largely outsourced complexity management. I mean, this is what we do when we buy a highly sophisticated device or when we use a highly sophisticated service to do something for us, we're outsourcing complexity management. But it's getting to a point where it's possibly unbearable, unsustainable. And so in this highly complex societal organization, we as individuals have really let go of most of our complexity tackling capacity. And so the transition or the transformation I'm talking about is that at a societal level, there are probably ways to decomplexify so that at an individual level, as we raise our complexity appreciation level, well, the two levels of complexity at the society and at the individual may reconcile again. Whereas today, there is a serious chasm between the societal complexity level that is way beyond any individual's reach and the individual's appreciation of complexity, which is super tiny. Nice. That's a nice, uh, almost to come in that, that we need to raise our internal capacity for complexity in order to embrace and accept the consequences of a lower level of lived complexity in the external world. I think to to build on what you just um, said, Peter, 
deep and sustainable transformations require that we begin by a first step in our journey, which is about going up in complexity, raising our appreciation for complexity so that in a second step in this journey, we land elsewhere in a newly simplified complexity that is much different from the complexity of the world that we just left. To deeply question the organizing principles of the society we live in requires that we we let go of some of the simplifications that have been um, imposed upon us, like, for instance, measuring the wealth of a country by a single metric, um, the GDP. To, to let go of this simplification requires that we first embrace complexity again and find our way in another um, direction that ultimately will yield a new form of simplification that perhaps we find more desirable, we find more sustainable, and we are more happy to be uh, living in. Cool. Thanks, Thomas. Last question. Have you got a sense of what, what you want to end on? Well, I would end with um, a question that I'm asking myself and I would love for uh, the listeners and our community at large to, to be uh, picking on it, which is, can't we understand many of our um, individual and collective and societal situations better when we look at them through the lens of how the future is being used in those situations. In other words, to find cure or to find ways to optimize or to find ways to transform some of the processes that we've put in place for ourselves, some of the processes that are being put in place in organizations and the likes. Can't we dedicate a lot of time to figure out how exactly the futures are being used to unlock situations that in the end are just asking for our relationship with the futures to be unlocked. I'm going to give you a very simple day-to-day -day example. For some of us who have kids, we know that um, we are going through moments of tensions with them when they want something and we don't want them to have this something. Well, what this boils down to is a future clash. They don't see the same future as I see the future. And the question I would ask is, can't we then, let's say, undo those tension moments by spending time just talking through our appreciation of the futures? Can't we begin in companies any important discussion by a roundtable where every single people is being genuine about the relationship that he or she entertains with the futures, the hopes, the fears, the questions that he or she is asking himself about the future. This is like one of the most intimate parts of who we are, the relationship that we entertain with the future, because it is so central to how we behave individually and collectively. So again, 
question is, can't we take a new look at many, many disciplines and look at the concepts and theories and topics that they study through the lens of the future as a new topic to investigate? Turning the question back on you, if we have that conversation in organizations and groups where people talk about their relationship with the future that they wish for, possibly the future they fear for, is it necessary that people in organizations and groups agree on the future? I actually think it would be um, undesirable that they agree. But what they shouldn't steer away from is creating the time and space to have authentic conversations about the relationships they entertain with the futures. The authentic conversation, the um, empathetic conversation, to me is a, let's say, necessary step for any useful, for any fruitful, for any peaceful conversation to take place. And we have no occasion or very limited occasions to freely open ourselves about the relationships that we entertain with the futures. This is a non-topic. There are official narratives of the future floating around. We've outsourced, by and large, our relationship with the futures. Let's regain control over this relationship with the future. Let's reconnect with the relationship with the future and see whether this helps us function better as individuals and us function better as uh, communities and groups of people. So somewhat, I'll go somewhat sideways with this question, Thomas, but has COVID somehow, could, could COVID somehow operate as a provocation and maybe a pivot to, to people better understanding their relationship to the future? What I think COVID has done is um, it has maybe, and uh, I guess we will know more in a, a few months, if not years, it has maybe revealed the extent to which the official narrative of the future that is by and large resting upon ever increasing progress in science, in technology, in interconnectedness, etc., how much this official narrative of the future is fragile. And maybe what's happened is that people and organizations are recognizing in 2020 that they need to reboot their capacity to imagine alternative futures because what they considered to be a predetermined element, the future, is gone. I mean, it's not that we are back to a punk age. I don't think we are in the no future type situation, but we are in the um, interrogative stance towards the future. And so there will be much effort to be dedicated to reboot this imaginative capacity, this creative capacity, which might come at the right time because many people also inside organizations are feeling a loss of sense in the purpose of their job, of their organization, and perhaps to 
to have a dedicated working time towards recreating imaginative futures might, I guess, also help individually people to regain some sense for what they're doing. So what companies especially um, are not necessarily fully appreciating now is that it is not only their productive capacity that has been abruptly stopped, but even more severely what has been stopped and what is being revealed as extremely fragile is their ability to conceive alternative futures. Yes, I think that's... Uh, and yes, there is... In this disruption is both opportunity and, of course, risk that when narratives are disrupted and new narratives are picked up, there is a choice of narratives rather than a, a false choice or a, or a narrow choice. Yes, I would agree with that. There is going to be a, a choice and hopefully we will see a, an even greater diversity of narratives popping up, we will see an even greater of set of uh, imagined realities popping up. And, and then it will be, you know, up to us to decide um, which imagined realities make sense to us, which imagined re realities resonate with our um, core values and, and um, imagined realities that essentially we want to inhabit. Yeah, yeah. Thomas, thanks for a thoroughly enjoyable conversation and i hope the listeners of future pod enjoyed as well so thanks very much for taking some time out to talk to us on future pod thank you peter this has been another production from future pod future pod is a not-for-profit venture we exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.